Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. We're really in the take business. Jokes themselves are actually pretty easy. Take, like synthesizing a ton of information and succinctly saying it in a sentence in a funny way, that's the name of the game. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I sometimes say this one's a fun show, and often what I mean is that it's an interesting show, that I had fun doing it, Um, but I'm usually not talking to very fun people, like I'm not a fun person. But this week, this week is actually a fun show. I'm talking to a professionally fun person, Masan Minaj, who is the host of the new show on Netflix, Patriot Act, which is great and has debuted to rave reviews. But he was the last correspondent hired on The Daily Show by Jon Stewart. Uh, He's a comedian, of course. He did the great special Homecoming. He was the 2017 comedian at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where he also did a fascinating, great job. Um, This year, they've decided to take the comedians out and put in Ron Chernow which I don't fully understand why that would be better for Donald Trump. Instead of like having somebody make jokes about you, you have a historian who studies the greatest presidents in American history talk about presidential greatness. The possibility of that being a burn seems much higher and much more devastating potentially than, than just having a comedian there to make jokes, but whatever. Anyway, I'm fascinated by Minaj for a couple reasons. One is he's a UC kid like me, and as you'll hear, Part of this was just so I could try to figure out why he keeps shitting on UC Santa Cruz. But more, he's got a very kind of visual, infographic-oriented, deep approach to his comedy. I mean, he's very much like a political journalist with jokes. And I'm very interested in the creative process behind that. I'm interested in how he's built his show, how the visual aesthetic of it works. And so I'm glad he was willing to come on and talk about it all with me. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here is Hassan Minaj. Hassan Minaj, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. So getting on this podcast, it's been an elaborate uh, ploy to ask you one question. Are you ready for it? <laughs> Shit, hit me. What the, what's your problem with UC Santa Cruz? Oh, dude, come on. Don't do get you, into this. Do, this you, do, you, do you know where I actually went to school? You think it's UCLA. I'm a banana slug, man. Are you serious? I, I went for two years to Santa Cruz and then one to, to LA, but I, I count myself proudly as a banana slug. I, went, I, I was at Stevenson College. And I got I got a bone to pick. That's hilarious. I just love I just love picking on Santa Cruz. Look, as a kid who grew up in Davis and being part of the Northern California, I'm a Sacramento Kings fan. I have a chip on my shoulder. You always need something else to shit on. So you see Santa Cruz is just it's just funny to me. They're the banana slugs. Um it's just funny. I don't know. And you know the way UC rivalries are. I would say one of the funniest things out of my odd UC Santa Cruz 
is the butt of my jokes beef is that people have responded back to me online and they've been like, hey, that joke only works if you make fun of UC Riverside. And I'm like, got it, got it. <laughs> no, but you can't – I think you can't make fun of Riverside. I don't think that actually works. Why can't I make fun of Riverside? What well, I mean, one could, you can do whatever you want, right? Like I would, sure. I would never want to tell a comedian that they couldn't offend people. Nothing makes okay. you less popular than telling somebody a, a joke is offensive. But, okay. um, but, but my sense of it is, is that like – so Davis is academically like a little bit above UC Santa Cruz and UC Riverside but a little bit below um, like LA and Cal. And yeah, so, and yeah, if it were going yeah. at Riverside, in some ways, I think it would seem like a little bit of a like a like a like a cheap hit. Um, Got it. But Santa Cruz, it's nearby. It, it, it's like objectively it's a better per- place to live in. Like I feel like that's <laughs> okay, where this okay. is really coming from. Like it's objectively nestled in a redwood grove overlooking the sparkling Pacific. Like the mushrooms are really good. Like it, uh-huh. it's it's like a great place. And so so it's got a it's got something you can make fun of without it being taken too hard. Yeah, and it's also one could argue the proximity and prestige of both schools, respectively, is just right. It's like yeah, it's just you know close what I mean. Enough. Yeah, we're close enough that it's and it's also one of those things where you gotta have a, you you have in in late night you have to have a, a random beef, you know. So to me, it's just funny. Why not UCI? So I grew up here. Here's my UC background. I sure. grew up at University of California Irvine. I grew up on campus there. My dad's a mathematician. Oh wow! Um, I went to Santa Cruz. I um, transferred to UCLA. I want to note. I'm recording this podcast currently at UC Berkeley, where I was rejected not once, but twice when I applied to UC Berkeley. Hilarious. So I got, I got lots of feelings about UC schools. But UCI, in some ways, would seem to me like the real natural Davis competitor. Oh, yeah, I would say so. I would say so. And, it's, you know, I think the one thing that unites all of us, UCI kids, UC Davis kids, UC Santa Cruz kids, is we were all rejected by Berkeley. Yes. <laughs> That is that that is the common thread. <laughs> like Ezra, how's that not funny? Because it like it matters, but then it also so doesn't. Also, like at the age that I'm at, like that to me is just a perfect, a perfect place for comedy. So, so certain people have taken it very very seriously, and it's like, look, man, out of the series of things that are that are sort of problematic in the world, to have just a meaningless beef to me is the best. Also, I I genuinely I genuinely love how UC Santa Cruz has responded back. They have sent me merch. They have That's sent amazing. me UC Santa Cruz sweatshirts, banana slug stickers. But, but that's my point. The, the the one reason Santa Cruz, I think, works for the joke is that Santa Cruz kind of has a sense of humor about itself. It is We are called the banana slugs. Like, I yeah. feel like a lot of UCs, like, I don't want to, um, th- you know, give any give any unfair hit to my to my hometown. But, like, UCI doesn't have a huge sense of humor is my sense of the, of the situation. Sure. Santa Cruz, it's a, it's a, there's, a little, there's a little bit of fun in there. Also, I feel like UCI is just sort of like the strip mall UC. Like, there's an in and out right next to campus, and I just feel like I'm – I'm close to the mall. You say there's an in and out right next to campus, like that's a bad thing. I mean, there's an in and out next to UC <laughs> Davis too, but there's just this feeling of sort of strip mall, Jamba Juice, track housing, university. Do you ever, now that you're uh, an adult, now that we're both adults, yeah. um, you, we're, we're, we're about the same age. You're born in 85, right? Sure. Yeah, I'm 1985. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm 84. Um, do you, now that you're like in a city and, and you isn't it amazing the amount of land colleges get whenever I like now go and speak at a, at a college, I'm just really struck that like life is not, you don't like get to see big fields. I mean, 
college has a this i'm all for it but it has a sort of like wasted on the young quality to me now where i'm like oh i really nowadays if you gave me access to regular outdoor space i would really enjoy it and you're like this field is for intramural sports that's crazy (laughs) it's amazing it's just for im sports got it so I was surprised to find out the, the, the group in Davis. I didn't realize that. You, yeah. I have to say, of all, whenever I do the podcast with people, I check out the Wikipedia page because you always just should. Okay. You have an unusually interesting Wikipedia page. Why would you say, why would you say that? Be, because it re- reflects an unusually interesting life. So can, can, can we talk a bit about your story? So you're, you were here and you're, you were born in Davis, yeah? Correct. I was born in Davis, California. Uh-huh. And then your mother went back to India for eight years? Yeah, so my mom my mom uh, went to go sort of like finish her medical studies and um, she was in India. Then she was doing residency in New York and then she she actually ended up over the course of years moving closer and closer to Davis. Then she did her residency in Stockton, if, you, if anybody is uh, familiar with Stockton, California. Um, and then, yeah, back in Davis. And, yeah. and it says that during the during when she was in India, she came back to America, and and you and you got a sister, and then Correct. she went back to India. Correct. And then when my when my sister was two months, then she lived with my grandparents in India, um, and then and then she came back here when she was around um, three, turning four. That's a lot. Like, how much of a sense of all that did you have as a kid? I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a child of immigrants, so it's one of those things where you know things are things are constantly changing and evolving, um, and so it's one of those things where you just, as a kid, you just you just roll you just roll with whatever your situation is, and so um, it wasn't until later that I sort of realized, oh, this is this was like this was an interesting um, situation. But then when you talk to other kids who you know are children of immigrants, they sort of have this similar sort of story where, to varying degrees establishing your roots in America and with cousins or other family members or uncles or aunts is this very um, interesting and unique experience. But I think it definitely informed who I am as a person and also like sort of my comedic sensibilities and, and, and how I think about the world. What brought your parents out to California in the first place? So my dad is a chemist. So he got a job at the Cal EPA in Sacramento. Um, and my mom now works for the VA and has worked for the v- VA for years. And so she works at the the Mather VA over in Sacramento off of uh, Mather Boulevard. And did you go back to India much when you were a kid? I would go back every once in a while. And most recently, I would, I've would i gone back like multiple times per year, which has been really, really fun. As I've gotten older, I've tried to go back a lot. And it, that's been really cool. Why has that become more frequent for you? Um, it's, I just, you know, I miss seeing my grandma. I like, I like hanging out with my cousins. It's just, it's really fun to, to hang out with family when you're older and you have disposable income and you can just run around outside and, you know, your parents let you because you're, you're an adult. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just absolutely. fun to just, I, I've, yeah, it's just funny. Just I, my, my father's Brazilian and I've started as I've, I've gone older going back to Brazil more and seeing my family there more. And it, it's come to mean something different to me than it did when I was a kid. Yeah. When I was a kid, it was just like, we're going to go here. I'm going to stay at my cousin's place. We're going to sit in the living room and stare at each other. And then as I got older, you, you like you guys start developing, you know, personality and identity and you, you just start talking about life and love and politics and things just become a lot more interesting. And then you can you can start to go out with your cousins because they have a car and they can drive like and then you start to develop these like experiences and memories. Remember that night that we went out and we did but da 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 you know, <laughs> like we told our parents we we're going to do this, but we did this and just stuff like that. It's really, really fun. And and um. I love doing it. And it's just one of those things where I don't know if you feel like this creatively. 
it's really good to get out of America. I don't know what it does to you. It just it sort of just resets me in in a, in a very different way. I think it's good to get out of anywhere. Yeah. Um. I, I've started. You know, we were just talking before the started that you know we my my wife and I just moved back to California, and um and and part of it is just I mean there are a lot of reasons, but part of it is just wanting to be somewhere else again because you get into you get into habits of mind and patterns and patterns of movement and you you just kind of get narrow over time yeah um anyone anywhere and just I, i've started to think that just you know if one can just moving around just like to shake things up so you don't get too much in any set of patterns is just good for your is just good for your brain it's like michael pollan has this book about psychedelics but i actually think it oddly enough applies really well to travel that you want to create enough regular disorganization in the brain so that you don't get too like dug into your into your habits and patterns and stop being able to imagine like they're pretty different ways of experiencing things in the way you experience them every day i would agree with that you know it's it's one of those things, especially sometimes it's you know now working at the show um, and doing a doing a show every week. You're so in the grind, and I have this very specific routine of all right. I wake up, I see I see the baby, and then I, I get ready and I, I walk to work, and then I'm I'm at my office, and then I walk back, and there's these very specific routes that you take, and you see the same people, and and before you know it, three weeks just sort of flies by, and the way you identify Monday from Tuesday, from Wednesday, from Thursday, there really is no significant difference. Um, and, 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 I, and I think that's good in some ways because you can streamline things, but then it's bad in some ways when you're trying to find new ideas and sort of refill your oxygen tank of inspiration. So when I was one thing you're making me thinking about when I was young, um, I had I was one of those kids with unbelievable levels of death fear. Oh wow! Right, like I was so afraid of dying, and not to say that I'm like looking forward to it or anything now, uh -huh. but I mean it was it was like a crippling problem. What, spa what sparked that? I don't remember, but I do remember the day at home when it like dawned on me that there was this thing, death. Uh -huh. And I was just inconsolable. I remember like the room I was in. I remember like crying at my parents. Um, I feel like I grokked pretty quickly what it was. Like I wasn't, I wasn't like buying any of that. Well, we don't know. Um, uh, you know, like, and they're like, oh, well, it won't feel like anything. I was like, no, no, that's the whole point. Like that doesn't make it any better. The point is I want to keep feeling things. Um, but, but the, the, the reason I bring it up in this context is that, so as I got a little bit older, I'm just a little, little calmer. Um, one of the findings that always really scared me was this idea that time speeds up as you get older, that subjectively your experience of time gets faster as you get older. That felt really unfair. Yeah. And, I don't like that um, either. And it's always scared me. But, and then I've read some studies more recently that a big part of the reason that happens is routine and scheduling. Things feel like they go faster if you are more scheduled, which subjectively I feel is true. And, um, and nowadays in my life, I'm incredibly heavily scheduled. But like when you're a kid, it's like, I am free until my birthday, like from here <laughs> until my birthday when I, like I got no plans, yeah. I got to go to school, but otherwise no plans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that feeling of being constantly scheduled and things being more decided and like past narrowing down, I've like come to think of that as a thing that is uh, a little bit of an enemy of an expansive life. I mean, I'm not sure there are real ways to dodge it. It's certainly if you looked at my calendar, I have not dodged it. Yeah. But there is something in that, in the way it narrows you, in the way it makes time fly by, in the ways you were saying that you get from like Monday to Thursday and you're like, what the, I'm super busy, but I feel like I just blinked and now we're here at the end of this. Yeah, and I'm in the same four rooms over and over and over again. Yeah. I guess that wasn't really a question. That's no, more no. I would so like do you, to do, better do you schedule and like play? Like how do you think, like in terms of, from the journalism standpoint, what do you do to sort of like enrich your, 
your sort of creative process? So a couple things. So the big thing I've done over the past year, year and a half, and the podcast has actually been part of it, I have moved to spending a lot of time reading every day, reading books. So I would say that for the first time in my life, or at least many, many years, I spend probably at least an hour and often quite a bit more than that every day reading a book. And it's specifically for my work. Um, you know, I'm reading the books of people who are on the show. I'm reading books for, you know, I'm writing a book. I'm reading, but, you know, like it, it, it fits. So I'm yeah. lucky to have that ability. But that somehow feels very expanding to me in a way that reading articles or certainly reading Twitter and Facebook don't. Yeah. Um, so creating more open space where I have the time to like read a book and then like creating more space to focus, um, you know, like longer chunks of time where I can sit and think about things or work on things for three or four hours. One of the things I've liked being out in California, it's like my work is on East Coast time and I'm on West Coast time. So after 2 p.m., nobody wants meetings with me because it's too late. That's great. Um, so that means I can take from, I, I start working pretty early, which is weird, but I can take then from two to six and like that's pure writing and, you know, or whatever I need to do deep work on time. Yeah. And like that's actually been pretty valuable. It must be great also being away. Like you're not in D.C. You're just – you're away. So you're it, does it kind of feel like – it's almost like sometimes when I'm on the road, I really like – there's these moments where I'm just in the hotel. I have like four hours to kill before I have to go to the venue. And it's like, all right, I'll just walk around and I have to be – if I have to be on a call, I'll just be – walking around Chicago or Nashville or wherever, whatever city I'm in. And I'm just out of that sort of normal routine. Like right now I'm in my office. I know what the walls look like. I know what the room smells like. It's a very familiar thing, but just to be in something sort of unfamiliar is kind of cool. Yeah. I think it's really valuable. And I think that the part of it is just not having that much scheduling. I mean, I, I, I this is something that I've just been thinking about, but I just think it's sort of a shame, you know? Um, I think you listen, you talk to people in sort of white collar roles a lot of the time and there's all this complaining about meetings, but I don't think meetings are bad. I think what's bad is like regularity that it's always going to be the same thing sort of like, and as that happens, as like the, the schedule fills up with things that they keep recurring, you know, sort of no matter how much value they really are that week, they're just, everything else just gets squeezed out. And I've just tried to think a lot about this idea that open time on my calendar is not open. That's like time I'm actually doing something, yeah. um, you know, thinking or reading or writing, but on the calendar, it looks open. And so anyone who wants anything from me, not anyone, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. anybody who has a claim on my time, you know, be like, oh, are you around for a call next Tuesday? And I'll look at Tuesday and it's like, okay, yeah, I got nothing between, you know, whatever it might be, 12 and two. So yeah, any time there. And I don't have nothing between 12 and 2, but I find it like that's actually my most valuable time probably, right? That, that, that time when there's nothing there, but like me working or thinking or even just like taking a walk and listening to a podcast to prepare for something. And yet I find it incredibly hard to be as defensive about that as I am about the most low value thing that is already on my calendar. It's like the mental default of having a calendar with spaces filled into it. I've come to believe is really toxic, but I also have no idea and no good ideas for how to get away from it. Yeah, and how do you get around it? Because like you're editor in chief of this huge media company. So I'm not anymore. That's one way I got around it. Oh, you dipped. Uh, I, I stepped down as editor. I'm editor at large, and I, and for about a year, that's been true. Um, that was one thing, right? Like I couldn't. I'd done that and had that kind of schedule for four years, and then some years before that at the Post, and it was just like it was time to recharge for a, a, a little bit. What prompted that desire? Because you can just keep pushing and being on the gas. What prompted that thing of like? Okay, this is this is really really intense because 
you know, like we're roughly the same age. We're, we're sort of in that zone where it's like, Hey, I'm in, I'm in my prime. I can keep going. You know, I'm in full form right now. Honestly, I couldn't. Wow. Like over a period of, like if I'm just going to be super honest. Yeah, yeah, please. I try to, I try to be like, I couldn't, I couldn't keep going like that. I had been, I had been going really hard, you know, basically since I started blogging at 18. Uh, and, and I love that. Like there's certain kinds of work that I manage really well. And to this day, like I, I, I work six days a week and, you know, long, and I don't say that as a, I think some of it's bad, but it's not that I don't like the work. It's that um, I just kept adding things and adding things. And so at some point I had so many different kinds of things I was doing that I wasn't doing any of them all that well. And uh-huh. the feeling of constantly being behind, that was what was breaking me. It uh-huh. wasn't the hours. The hours weren't worse than they had ever been. It was the feeling of fracture. And so the reason I stepped down as editor-in-chief was that I kind of had three jobs as editor-in-chief. One was my own kind of creative work, you know, writing or podcasting or making a video or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, another was sort of Vox strategic work, you know, kind of helping chart the direction and decide what we are and where we were going to go. And a third was kind of organizational management. Yeah. And like my creative work, is uniquely mine and organizational management I'm not uniquely good at. And so, you know, I sort of made the decision. We got big enough that for Vox to be well run, whoever was in that role had to be doing organizational management and strategic work full time. They couldn't be shirking that stuff so they could write an article in the corner of the time. And so, you know, I had the blessing of having a really, really good management team and in particular, um, you know, Lauren Williams and, and Alison Rocky and Joe Posner who were there, um, in Andragolis and there was space for me to step into a different role. So now I'm still very involved in the strategic stuff, but I don't do organizational management and I spend a lot more time on creative work and that gives me time to do the Netflix show and, and, and other things like that. And so it's felt, I think like a, it's been a good transition, but you know, I could see, like I could see where it was going and I could see like who I was becoming and it just wasn't good. Like I wasn't, I was like not a great version of myself for some time. And it's like, okay, like you can do that for a while, but right. you can't, you can't do it forever. Um, right. And, right, right. and I'm kind of glad I sort of realized that because I think if I hadn't, I would have fucked something up sooner or later. Wow. You saw the iceberg coming. Uh, yeah. Or it was more like a personal iceberg than it was sure. a um, professional one. Like I think sure. professionally, I probably could have kept it going, but I'm sure. curious. I mean, you must, uh, you've had a pretty rocketing rise in the past couple of years. You must be, there's a lot on your shoulders. Like you just launched a Netflix show. I mean, does it, does it feel good? Does it feel hard? Like how is it, how's like the experience of it been? The experience has been really, really like surreal and great. And, um, there's also, you know, right now we just finished our first sort of cycle of episodes and now we're in working dark and we're writing the the, the next batch. You know, it's one of those things and I'm sure you experience this being entrenched in news versus say working on like my new one man show or working on the new comedy hour. It is very much you are you're in the thick of it. You're in the news sort of cycle and even if you're doing an investigative deep dive in something you're really, really, really in that. And it's awesome in some ways when you, know, when you walk around in the street and people are like, oh, I love the show. I, I love the episode you did on Supreme or Amazon. And you're like, hey, thank you. That's, so, that's really, really cool. But it's also weird in some ways because I'm in the office for so long and working on these things is such – it's such a beast that sometimes you don't get the time to like step out and kind of like enjoy it and uh, touch the fans and see people. 
Do you do you like that part of it? I mean, that kind of feedback and the and and the touching and fantasy and the people is that is that like a is that a rewarding part of it for you? I love one of the funnest things about being a comedian, especially like a stand up comedian that works in sort of like political satire and sort of large philosophical comedic takes is like barbershopping, like having like a barbershop type conversation. Like, hey, what's your what do you think about this? And being able to go on stage and just sort of riff with an audience and talk back and forth or or be around other comedians and writers and just sort of talk about bigger concepts and ideas and have those interactions with people. I really love that. It like it's the best part of my job. I th- I think I couldn't imagine um you know, being like a Stephen King or something like, Hey, I I have my like cottage or I have my office and I go in there and I just, I bang it out. I really feel like these comedy atoms have to collide amongst other people. You have to sort of talk it out with other people. That's the way I sort of think. Is that a structured thing or is that a spontaneous thing? I, I always wonder what is the process in that kind of role for generating ideas and, and, and refining them because like for a journalist, it's so structured, you know, like the news is happening. It gives you some sense of like what it is you're actually covering. Like you make calls to certain people. Like there's yeah. a real um, system to, to how you decide what you're going to write tomorrow. But that doesn't seem to be like how it is for comedy. So, you know, do you just sort of you're walking around and hoping to get an idea? Like what is the process of actually finding your finding your content? Yeah, for me, it's like, it's two things. It's exploration of the internal and external. So a lot of what I do is sort of like personal storytelling or things that I'm personally thinking about that are just kicking around in my head. And, and I'll, I'll do a lot of free writing and stuff like that. And there, there'll just be certain things that I, I see in my free writing where this is a recurring theme. Oh, I'll, I'll maybe let me start talking it out with, you know, a couple other comedian friends of mine or I talked to Prashant Venkat who's like the co-creator of Patriot Act and he's the the head writer of the show. We've collaborated and worked on a lot of stuff, the White House Correspondence Dinner. He came in and helped with Homecoming King, my special. You know, there's I sort of have this like circle of people that I that I'm really close with, you know, John Mullaney, Neil Brennan, Mike Berbiglia, people that I'll call or say, hey, I'm working on this thing. Can what do you think of this take? Or hey, can you help me with this? I, I shot this little like thing. Can you take a look at it and give me notes? And that really is super, super helpful. But in day-to-day collaborations, I think of comedy a lot of, a lot of times like music. If you've ever seen like documentaries of your like favorite musician, they'll be in the studio and vibe is very important. There's this like – it really does feel like there's this intangible feeling where if you're in the zone, if you're riffing with someone and you guys are just bouncing off of one another – you can come up with really great ideas or takes or tags and I try to create space in my day-to-day life as much as possible where I can just riff like that with people based on the stuff that I've been writing. And then there's the external. I'll watch the news. I'll be at the airport. I'll see what people are like looking at on their iPads or their phones. I'll be like, what, what is everybody looking at or what, what are they talking about? And then I'll get inspiration from that and think about like what's my take or connecting point to that. Tell tell me about the free writing. What is your what is is free writing like a schedule? Is it something you do like when you wake up? What what is free writing? Yeah, so I remember, you know, when I first started doing stand up comedy, I was at I was at UC Davis and they had they would have these like coffee shop open mics and I remember getting like really into I was really into the Daily Show and the Colbert Report and into George Carlin and stuff like that at the time, Chris Rock. And one of the things that I heard that they did is 
that you know Carlin and these guys would 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 basically take a yellow legal pad of paper and they would just start vomiting ideas on it. And the more I sort of like read stuff about the creative process, I heard that a lot of people would just free write. You don't have to – it doesn't have to be assigned. You just have to write three pages of whatever is on your mind. And so I started to started doing that in the mornings and it's been, it's been really, really helpful. And even if I can't do it in the morning, I will find a time in the afternoon or even at night to just sort of start pouring it out, you know, taking anything that's in my head and putting it on the page and I think that's really, really important. It just gets you, again, in a creative zone. So you have to lack inhibition. If I were to like break into your house and read your yellow pages, um, not that I, I probably won't do that, but would, I, would that read like a diary or would that read like jokes? It would be terrifying. I would, that would be the worst thing ever. I would rather have <laughs> naked photos of me leak on the internet. I would, I'm so scared of that. Did you see that Gary Shandling documentary on HBO? No. It, that's exactly what our notebooks are like. Gary Shandling's documentary, Judd Apatow did this great documentary on Gary Shandling. It's on HBO. It really gives an amazing inside look uh, into the mind of, I, I think, one of the greatest comedians ever. But um, there's a lot of sort of not funny stuff you're working out um, on the page. And so, yeah, it would be it would be terrifying if someone found those things and just started reading through them. I also purposefully write in a very, very incoherent scribble. That way, just in case people do find it, like... <laughs> it's in a, yeah. It's in a, like a bad Yeah, because you know how people are code? just like... Yeah, people are like, oh man, privacy. There's so many privacy issues. Amazon knows everything that you're doing. Google knows everything that you're doing. Facebook knows everything that you're doing. I'm just like, thank God they don't have my notebooks. Because <laughs> if they did, that yeah. would be truly terrifying. And yeah, you wouldn't want those products advertised to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, I mean, they know what I like. They don't know why I like it. What's <laughs> wrong with me? So when I um, went to Santa Cruz, uh, America's greatest university, uh-huh. I I took a stand up comedy class. Okay. This is a, a little known fact about me, and you'll you'll be shocked to know that um, political bloggers were kind not super funny. That's not why weren't you? Fun, what, my, how did it go? How did I'm your not, first I'm not go? that funny. I will actually say I don't want to I don't want to blow up my wife's spot on this, but uh-huh. we, I was saying this in a group of people the other day, and she's like, "You're very good at appreciating other people's humor," <laughs> which I thought was like a like when your wife says that, yeah, you're like, yeah, I'm not that funny. That's the that is the that is the sweetest way to be. Funny. Um, <laughs> you're not really funny, but you you uh, you give props to a lot of people yeah, who are funny. I think it's true. I think like I have a good sense of humor. Like a, like a, my 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 humor sense is strong, but like my ability to like create humor in the world is. I mean, that's certainly not 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 what I'm best at. But I remember doing it, and I really enjoyed it. It was a really fun thing to to do. But it didn't make me think I should be a stand-up comedian. So I'm curious how that happens for you. Like, it'd be so even strange to think about that as a as a career path. So what happened at, at Davis? Because you were a political science major. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, I was a pre-med major because, you know, I'm, my parents are Indian. Oh, you're pre-med. Like, yeah, I started pre-med and it just went horribly. Uh-huh. Like, I was not good. Uh, right around organic chemistry, I'm like, this is just not for me. Well, that's the calling, um, right? <laughs> yeah, like Ochem is where Ochem is where they like narrow down to. Oh yeah, yeah. Ochem and physics is really where they 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 separate you. Like there's there's it's big separation season there, and so that's where I was like I'm I'm not gonna be able to do this. Had a conversation with my parents. Um, you know, in high school I was a part of FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America, Academic Decathlon, and my favorite events were. All the oratory stuff, speech and debate, forensics, impromptu speaking. I, I really like that stuff. And I didn't realize this, but if you were funny off the cuff, judges really liked it. All of a sudden, you would sort of separate yourself from the pack because you could make people in the audience laugh. 
And, you know, when we were in college, that was the big T3 era. Kids were downloading everything. And I remember in the dorms, a bunch of kids had downloaded a bunch of stand-up specials. And I remember watching it and being like, oh, my God, it's funny speech and debate. Like, I've seen this before. But this is hilarious and you can talk about whatever you want to talk about and there's no pushback. It was just – it was a it was a revelation to me and performing has always been really fun. I've always loved that live element because you just don't know what's going to happen and there's not a lot of things that still exist like that today where it's not captured or there's not likes or comments. It's just this moment you share together in that room. You build this sort of comedy sandcastle. And then that night that for that 8 o'clock show, by 10 p.m., it all washes away. And that was that. You just had that moment. And there's something really, really amazing and powerful in that. And it's also why I really do defend comedians when they say – even if they say crazy things that I don't agree with on stage, there's just something beautiful in that risk. Because when we're working on material, we really don't know where it's going to go. And there's something kind of beautiful in that. Yeah, it's funny. I, whenever I hear the conversation about – comedians and offensiveness and like if we're not talking about a super crafted special right you're just you know you went to a comedy club and, and people got upset yeah i always think that there's this question and I, I think about it every time i do this podcast of like have you prepared the audience to listen to things in a certain way right do they know that you're working on material do they know that they're here in conspiracy with you or do they think they're like the audience watching something polished uh, i feel like we often don't give people good context for what we're doing, and then we're surprised when they judge us negatively. Yeah. It's one, on this podcast, I think something I do is a little bit weird is I'll often like say at the beginning of an episode, like, hey, I'm anxious about putting this out. Like this is this is tricky territory. I'm worried people are gonna hear this the wrong way. And I think it's helpful. Like I think it it tells people that like, okay, this is not like a fully done thing here. Like they're we're we're, we're doing this together. They're opting in. And and I always oh, wonder about smart. that. Like I wonder if when you do if when you do stand up, if there are ways that you kind of convey to an audience. Like I was there when you were doing uh, like a very kind of early version of right. some of the work you're doing now. Yeah. And like you came out, you're like, hey, I am trying. Like you are helping me. Like you are a um, like uh -huh. we're doing a brainstorm session here. Yeah. And I felt like that really helped with the room. Like I'm right. curious how you think about preparing people to like meet you where you actually are. Yeah, I'm less of the. See, this is the thing. Like I think both parties need to need to meet somewhere in the middle you know there's a lot of stand-up comedy purists with their arms crossed and they're just like you know what fuck them the audience needs to come along they need to they need to know what it is and 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 we get to say whatever we want in these basements and i'm like hey man hear me out some of them have never been to a stand-up comedy club before the fact that they're paying for two drinks, the fact that they're coming to this basement, this is all new to them. So understand that their perception of what this is, you don't know what their entry point is. So anything you can do to try to prime that or if the club can prime them, that, that I think is really, really beneficial. And at the same time, I wish some audience members also understood we need places – all of us, like creative people or people in general, we need places where we can fail and not be perfect and understand that it's okay and there is beauty in that. And I I just – I see both sides but I just think both sides sort of need to understand where the other side is coming from. Um, so when you came to see me, you know, it was at the Fat Black Pussycat. It's a $5 cover. It's called, you know, San Minaj Experiment Time. In the title, Experiment Time. Like I am experimenting. I come on stage. I have a packet. I read out of like a packet 
and there is a music stand and I'm literally reading stuff that I am workshopping. Also at the top of the set, I go, hey guys, like this is all new stuff. I know you paid $5. Trust me, by the time this is over, you'll be like, you owe me three fifty. So I make it very clear that like, hey, this isn't going to be the best experience. But um, I really, really do look out and, and, I, and I feel for comedians because I, I, know, I know how hard it is. I do think there's something interesting in what you say there about needing to have spaces where people can fail. Um, yeah. I, this is like a weird um, – Where do like, you guys fail? Like as a journalist, where do you fail? Constantly and in is, public. <laughs> but but yeah, because everything is everything is like I hit publish and it's like a reflection of who you are. Yeah. And you have this whole like digital brand. You have to create a body of work. I don't know how often, but like that must be also a crazy pressure, which I, which I don't understand either. You know, I bet you understand it better than you think, actually. So I talk about this sometimes on uh, on on the show. So people might be tired of hearing it. But so I started out as a blogger. Like I started blogging in college when like that wasn't a thing. Yeah. Like there were no professional bloggers. Like, yeah. it, was, like that, it was writing on the internet, you know? Yeah. And one of the things I really miss about that, a way in which writing is less fun for me at 34 with like a big audience and I get paid for it and people actually pay attention. And I mean like, holy shit, I'm like living the dream. And I really am. Yeah. But one way in which it's less fun for me at 34 than it was at 19 is I could fail. Like at 19, like I could be wrong about things. I could try on ideas in public. You know, I could go to the audience and say, you know what, I'm thinking about this and I'm not sure I'm right. And then all the time people come back and say, no, like the most basic study in this field that you are theorizing about says you are totally wrong. And it was fine. It was a conversation. And the more you're sort of writing with an institution behind you and, you know, you're actually saying, hey, I'm, I'm here to bring you the news or explain the news or whatever it might be. <laughs> Just before I came here, Andrew Sullivan, uh, he's at New York Magazine now, he wrote this thing being like, <laughs> he was actually like he's a long critique of social justice warriors but his like thing where he like just offhandedly mentioned Vox he's like you know writing explainers for Vox to make the world a better place it doesn't fully slake the need for religion and I was like no <laughs> it is not, it is not a full substitute for religion but there's this way in which um, you know as you kind of climb up the ladder it develops this authority and people are asking for it to do things that the institution can do, but the people can't do. Mm -hmm. And so the people are still people. And that means they have to get more careful and they have to get more safe. And like things go through more rounds of editing. So more people are seeing it. And it does take out like a really beautiful element of spontaneity that, you know, I miss. And that I think honestly, the audience overall misses. I think it's one thing people like on Twitter. Like I, one reason I wish Twitter were a more generous place is I think something about it people love is everybody just like bullshitting and trying things on. But then the way in which it gets context collapsed and like people like see something go wrong and then it moves out of the circle you were talking to and into a circle that doesn't read you generously and then like you're destroyed. Like it's not a safe space to do any of that. Yeah. So I think it, I, I think this is like a real – I think this is a problem. Like I think it hurts our public discourse. I think it makes for a safe discourse when we often need a, a somewhat less safe one. What's the solution? Where do you see it going? <laughs> Did I say a solution? <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm just riffing. Like where do you, where do you see it going? I, I, I mean it's one reason I like the podcast. I get asked a lot and who knows. I might change my mind on this in the future. But a lot of people ask why I don't put up transcripts of these shows. Oh, and yeah. one reason is because I don't want people to be able to just like clip out – yeah. A, you know, kind of awkwardly worded thing and kill someone who's on the show. 
um, or me for that matter. And, you know, so when I do put up a transcript, I put a lot of work, I edit it down, like I'm careful with it, you know, like I, I cut things down so they make sense, but it takes a lot of time. I don't know that there is an answer to this, to be honest with you. Um, you were just talking about ephemerality and something I was thinking about with your Netflix show and I think about with our Netflix show is even compared to when I was doing cable news, you know, you did cable news for a night or you did a, you know, a comedy special that showed on Comedy Central and then it was done. It was over. It was gone. Like you couldn't get that unless you like went to the Library of Congress. Yeah. Now these things are in archives forever. Yeah. And, you know, they'll look different at some point in the future. And somehow we're going to have to know how to how to read that a little bit more generously, it seems to me. Like we're going to change the curve. I think so too. I really do. Like, you know, the same way we look at like musicians and their albums and you can just, we, we were forgiving of, of them and you know that they recorded this a certain period of time in their life. I think eventually we'll get to that place too with people's writings or their specials or their thoughts, you know? Hey, this person was 21 when they said that or they they were this age when they wrote that song. You can understand where they're coming from. I hope so at least. Yeah, I I I don't know though, you know? It does not seem to me we're getting more generous. I think that there is this kind of weird thing happening where we somehow know we need to get more generous. And something about the platforms and the way we're communicating and the way we're all getting hurt and responding in kind is making us less generous. Hmm. The, the two things seem to be going on parallel tracks, like this understanding everybody has that this has gotten bad. And then I look at the way they act and it's like going in the opposite direction. I'm, I'm curious if you feel that or is that, is that something that I'm just feeling in a kind of grim old – you No, know, it's, a gen- it's a genuine fear that I have where it's like – you know, I, I'm afraid often. I'm like, what if I mess up? And people are like, well, what do you mean? I go, I don't know. What You, you know how like when you were a kid and you walk into class and you walk up to like someone that you like, but your your fly is down? Like you think you're totally fine, but your fly has been down the entire time? <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That like I have a blind spot to something. And because people look up to you or people are a fan of you, you let them down not by virtue of your – a vindictive bad person, but just because you accidentally had your fly down, you just didn't know. And now that's magnified times however many hundred thousand or million people got to see that. That That's the scariest thing. Um, because I, I actually like, I feel ashamed of things. You know, I feel mm-hmm. sad if I, you know, do something, you know, wrong or if I hurt someone, I'll, I'll feel shame, you know? Here's my, opti- here's my optimistic version of the view, which is, the one thing I don't see as often as I feel like people say it's out there yeah. is people being unwilling to credit on some level good motivation, you know, when they when they get some of that context. I, I do think that people a lot of the people who complain about how poorly they're read, I often look at their work and I'm like, eh, you know, I think people are actually reading you correctly and you kind of don't like the conclusions they're drawing. I do find that, you know, not always, but on some like kind of average, yeah, I think people who've had like long careers of trying, and I do think trying is a key word here. I don't think people expect anyone to be right all the time, but I do think they expect them to be trying and to be trying to be better today than they were yesterday. And that's particularly true if you have a big audience and a big platform. I often see, to me, a, a lot of the whining from people in positions of power comes from feeling like they shouldn't have to do all that much work to deserve the platform they get and the power they have. And, you know, among the people who do seem to be trying, I don't see that much 
incredibly ungenerous reading. I, I think people get mad at you for a thing, but I don't see them like willing to like throw you out over it. Mm. And it, it seems to me that in general, the things that actually like take down people's careers, you know, are, are pretty severe. Um, right. You know, if you look at something like, you know, I think there's a lot to admire in Charlie Rose's career as an interviewer. But many decades of sexually harassing people who worked for him and were, and were around him, like that's a really big thing, right? That's not a small thing that right. the culture reacted against. It's a big thing. And I don't see that many people losing their jobs over a tweet, to be honest. Um, but right. I do think that part of the problem is it really hurts, right? Those kind of pylons really hurt. And so there's something about, you know, can we ever get out of like the mindset, you know, as like beings who evolved to be around 150 people of like feeling the sense of like internal emergency when people are yelling at you, even if the people yelling at you, it doesn't really matter. They're just going to move on and you're going to move on. It'll be fine in a week. I think like the aversion we have towards that, very understandably, I have it too. I think that's a more of a part of this conversation than career damage is. Yeah. But it's like nobody wants to admit that. They don't want to admit that they just want to feel safe and they don't anymore. Yeah. Now you've gotten into – you've also delved into something that I thought was like really, really fascinating. You've gotten into public sort of debates and disputes with people and putting it on the record, like the the race IQ stuff, all that stuff, which I think is pretty – pretty ballsy you know like i've always said you know there's two different types of comedians there's the there's like the twitter beef comedians and then there's like just comedians who are like hey i put i put everything into my work you can judge my take and my position on everything through the work you'll see it through the special and then there's like certain people that are almost like rap beef artists where they're like no no no, no. i put out disc records and that's how i tell you how i feel about things i'm not like a a Twitter beef or rap beef guy, what made you go, I want to debate and I want to put it on the record? That's so funny that that I'm, I'm getting put in the Twitter beef or rap beef category. <laughs> I Totally. Like to me, that's like a thing where I'm like, oh man, the comment section is just going to be people arguing. Yeah. You, you remember going, to, I remember like at UC Davis, there was this debate between a rabbi and imam. I remember it was on campus and my wife, who, who's from a Hindu family, I remember when this happened, she was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. This is not going to bring people together. It is only going to be like really divisive, you know, and look, like the debate should happen and we should all have like a healthy form of, you know, conversation, all that stuff. But I don't disagree with what my wife said. Like each, like the audience was there to see like the Pacquiao Mayweather fight, but best believe both sides walked away being like, oh, my side was right. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know how much understanding it it got and it's one of those things where i think about this all the time where i'm like when i ask myself deep down inside i'm like what i do you know like people have called me out on twitter or whatever you know people have been like i i want you to debate so and so i'm like would i do that like is that who i am um what got you to do it so i'll say and i can only speak for my own like weird idiosyncratic view on this sure one thing you'll never see me do under any circumstances get into twitter beef Okay. I will not, I don't read my mentions on Twitter. I don't respond to people on Twitter. I don't, like, I don't believe any good comes of arguing with people on Twitter. I don't believe you get reconciliation. I don't believe you get understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and in general, I'm a little down on, like, things that are framed as debates, which is not to say I never do them. I will if I think there's a good reason to. Yeah. But I, I, I don't want things to be framed in exactly the way you were just saying. Yeah. Where, um... You know, there are two sides and people are coming to see who won. And it's yeah, like the yeah, thing, yeah. like even if you won, what the other side will 
be like, it's like, damn, I lost, right? Like not, um, you know, maybe I was wrong. Um, so I, the one you're thinking of is I had like, I'd say like the, the, the only thing really in the past couple of years I've had that is like a serious kind of hyped up showdown debate is with Sam Harris. And that has like a complicated backstory for how it happened and like why we got into it. Um, and it mostly had to do with like him, I would say, like rejecting a lot of opportunities to talk to someone else or like reconcile. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, by the end of it, like I did think it was important. And in that case, you know, the way I went into it and the reason I went into it was that I had things I wanted to say to him and that I wanted to say to his audience. And I tried to approach that in a framework where I thought they could listen. Like even that debate, as much as it was about race and IQ, is also very much about who gets listened to and who gets heard. And what I tried to do was frame a lot of what I was saying in terms of their worldview. Like that debate was actually in some ways less framed in terms of my worldview than most of like the way I think. Um, Because like what I wanted to try to show there was, um, you know, if you've decided not to talk to anybody, you know, like a Ta-Nehisi Coates or, you know, people who are coming at this from a different angle, you're going to miss parts of it. And so you're not approaching the world in a way that is um, as rational as you think, and you're going to get to to bad outcomes. Um, And so like the reason it was worth it to do for me was because I wanted to reach that audience. I wanted to reach his audience with that argument. And I think to some degree I did. I've been, you know, really um, gratified by the feedback of that. But in general, on this show, it's funny, I've actually just been thinking about recording a little thing about this for the show. I try to have conversations and not debates. Um, and I never want things to be framed as debates. And I will all the time get feedback on the show from people saying like, oh, like, I don't understand why you didn't like really like dig in the knife on this person you just had on who, you know, they disagree with or they feel I disagree with. And it's because I'm trying to find the places where you can learn from people, not the places where you can't. Um, But I think conversations are good, you know, and so I just I think there's like a really interesting thing you bring up there. And it's why I sort of laugh about the idea of it being like rap beefs, because what I'm often trying to do is have conversations that are, you know, in disagreement, but are understood by the audience here as a conversation rather than debates where it's like somebody is going to score more points at the end and that person was the winner. Because like if you do that, you've set up a thing where you can't really learn from them. They can't really learn from you. Like maybe the audience can learn some stuff, but probably they're going to want their side to win. And right. it's just like it's not, a, it's not a framework set up for anybody to achieve anything, I think. Yeah. yeah. Except like points. Right. Right, right, right. Does that, I can agree with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. As a, Basically what you're saying is like you'll Trojan horse – a conversation people will think it's a debate because of oh like you know maybe we're you know diametrically opposed in our sort of political viewpoints or positions but i'm just trying to have a conversation and hopefully that engenders some empathy on the other side or people sort of see what your intention is and and it and it, and it comes off more of, more as a conversation well it's funny actually because i realize you, when you say this that i'm very used to something that a lot of people aren't which is i'm a reporter Mm-hmm. And so I think for a lot of folks, like the idea that you would like have in public conversations with people you really disagree with, with other people, you know, potentially seeing the product, yeah. that's pretty weird, right? It's like, that's maybe a debate. But for me, there's this whole other class of thing, which is reporting. Like I'm always reporting among people I don't agree with. I spend probably more time talking to people I don't agree with than people I do. Mm-hmm. And that's because like I'm trying to build my own model of the world, right? And trying to like figure out how this article should work or like what needs to be in it or what is true about something or why somebody who I don't understand why they believe what they believe, like why they believe it. And so I don't know, like I'm not even trying to Trojan horse it. Like I'm trying actually to like de- 
debate it. Um, I just had John Hyde on the show. And John and I like agree on a huge number of political psychology things. He's been very influential in my thinking. And I'd say we like mostly disagree or like roughly disagree on a lot of this kind of political correctness, campus panic stuff. But I really tried to set that up on the show where I like said to the audience first, like, this is a guy I respect. Like this is somebody I have learned a lot from over the years. Um, you know, and I, I want to hear what he has to say and I'll push back. And but, you know, I'm trying to like trying to figure this out. And so I don't know. I worry that we've gotten into a frame where um, we believe that a, conversations that have disagreement in them are debates. And I think of debate as a very limited thing. Like debate is a kind of performance. Yeah, and sometimes it really it's a performance is. worth doing and it's fun. Yeah. And like I would do it for that reason. Like yeah. I would like I would totally have debates for this or that reason. Like I, it's fun. Like I enjoy debating. Yeah. But in general, I try not to do that. And I really think that's why I never do it on Twitter because I think that's all it is there. I think there it's pure performance. And it's like, are you getting likes or are you getting ratioed? You know, it's funny. The, the, the comedy equivalent of that is roast. The roast. Uh-huh. It's like – you very much know what your agenda is. You're like, I'm going to rip you apart. And their their agenda is to rip you apart. And then it, that's it. And then that's why I always like at the end of the roast, it's always kind of like, that being said, jokes are great. I think you're pretty cool, man. Um, thank you. Good night. But it doesn't solve a whole lot. It's It really is like, hey, who's the nicest with their words? Like it's comedy acrobatics. Like who can come up with the best burns, you know, and as quickly as possible. But to, to turn this on you a bit, you worked at The Daily Show. Yeah. And The Daily Show operated in a very interesting space in this way. It was a show that was like clearly pretty liberal. I mean, still is, yeah. but but in the time when you were there, it was clearly pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. But I think it had a more, it certainly had a more mixed audience than say an MSNBC. Um, Stewart often interviewed people who were to his right, and I think he was really good at doing it. How did you see what the project of The Daily Show was when you were there? Like, what were you all doing? I mean, the thing that I I really learned there that I think was just the biggest secret and breakthrough for what I do, and it's just informed my career and my life and just the way I think about comedy, is that we're really in the take business. Jokes themselves are actually pretty easy. Take, like synthesizing a ton of information and, you know, succinctly saying it in a sentence in a funny way, that's the name of the game. That's why people turn to these shows. You know, people love Conan or they love Sam B or they love Stewart or Colbert or Trevor because they love their take, their ability to go. I know you're hearing a ton of different things. You have 18 browsers open in your Mozilla Firefox. Here's the one tab. Let me give it to you in five minutes. And it makes people say two things. Oh, I never thought of it that way. Or two, thank you. You're saying how I felt. And that's what I realized because I remember when I first joined the show, I would be in those 9.15 a.m. pitch meetings and I was just firing off as many jokes as possible. They weren't connected to anything. I was just trying to be funny. They were like one-liners. And then I quickly realized, oh, you build an entire act around a take or a position. That's why these people are so good at what they do and that's why they get to host their shows. And it, it just changed my life. In those meetings – is what came first the story or is what came first like the funny angle on it? Like was it like you almost were operating like a news show and then like you bolted on jokes at the end or yes. were you operating like a comedy show and you bolted on news? Totally. It's what is the crazy story? Does it have interesting tape or footage? What's the jumping off point? And then what's your take on that? And is it funny? Do you have a funny take on it? 
And then you layer sort of jokes on it at the end. Believe it or not, there is a science to joke writing and it, it, it is a beautiful science, but there's a limited number of moves you can do within just pure joke writing, one-liner joke writing. But there's a lot more moves that you can do when you couple that with sort of being poignant or being earnest or being, you know, like you can hit a lot more emotional notes and John is really good at that. Steven's really good at that. Trevor's becoming really, really good at that, especially with the stuff that he's doing between the scenes and storytelling. He's really great at that. And so that to me is one of the things that, you know, it's in the blueprint of all these shows. What made John Stewart so good? I just think he was really, 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 really good at not only having the best take, but being really earnest and not, you believe what he's saying. And that's an intangible that you just, it's either you have it or you don't like this medium, you know, whatever it is, late night host, whatever. It's a quarterback's medium. It's not like SNL. SNL is an ensemble cast. So if it's built around the quarterback, you are limited by the number of skill sets the quarterback has. I'm sorry, like I can only use sports analogies, but like <laughs> but like honestly, like if your quarterback is good is only good within the pocket or can't call audibles or can't scramble, you're limited in how far you can take your team. It's just it's just the nature of the beast. And so John is like if his QB Madden rating, he was he was at least an eight in every department. He was really, really, really strong at at a lot of different things, but he was off the charts on the things that really, really mattered. Whip smart, intelligent, voracious reader, really earnest and genuine. And then, I mean, the huge, I think, thing that he did that that makes him all time is he created a medium where everyone after him is kind of doing an iteration of him. Everyone before him looks obsolete and everyone after him bears his fingerprints. Yeah, I mean, that's the amazing thing. Yeah. When you do something new and people go, oh, you're doing – you become almost not only a noun but also a verb, that is when you're doing something really, really special. And you don't – there's not a lot of times in your career you get to do that. I'm not saying everyone can do that, but that's what he did. That's why he's on the Mount Rushmore. Something that I was always interested in The Daily Show compared to the things that came before it were it had this very deep it seemed to me respect for the intelligence of its audience. Like yeah. it, it had this very conspiratorial and, you know, I think it could, you know, I think the criticism of it is it could verge into almost like a condescension towards people outside of the audience. Like, like we know the secret and like, like what the fuck is wrong with all of them. But there's something about, like, I feel like it slightly changed the view. And then you've seen that kept getting iterated on by like you and John Oliver and Samantha B. but it sort of changed the idea of what an audience was willing to sit through and connect to in politics. I mean, it was much more, I mean, as you say, it's like, it's like you took like an op-ed page or like the front of the book in the Atlantic and like made it funny, but still it was operating on those kinds of topics, which doesn't seem to me to have really been what was going on there before. Yeah. I don't know how much of it was done by design. I think it's more of like John just really made the show he was really interested in making. And this became a byproduct of it, if that makes sense. You know, like he was just like, look, like I don't want to do Kilbourne's iteration of the show. I, I don't want to do like local news reports about 
this man in Toledo, Ohio has tattoos all over his body. So let's take local news footage and then just make fun of him. I think he was like, that's kind of mean. I would rather – if I'm going to do an iteration of a news show or a clip show, can I choose clips that I think are worth making fun of? And if, if you continue to iterate and build on that, it became this thing of his analysis of cable news and specifically character-driven cable news through the Bill O'Reilly's and stuff like that. There is this thing um, that you just said there that he did the show he was really into. And yeah. like that feels to me like the returns on that are getting bigger and bigger. I mean it, it feels to me like in your show that you've created something here that you're that's really specific to you. And I'm I'm curious how you thought about that, right? Like how how you thought about like what you uniquely could do versus there's gotta be a pressure or a sense it's like, okay, I'm gonna have one of these shows. I should do one of these shows. I know how they work. Like, how do you actually see through the format? To like the reflection of yourself in it. I mean, I I don't know if I can get all like the credit for that. Like, I had really good conversations with John, but I had a really great conversation with Larry Wilmore, and this was before I did the White House Correspondence Center. I remember Wilmore told me, Larry was like, "Look," and he's just been a great advisor. Larry's a, a really really great you know comedian and thinker and and podcast host, but he's he's got a producer's mind, which is really great. And he goes, look, man, like he had done it the year before. Um, he'd done it Obama's last year. And he goes, look, you need to make this speech your own. You know, what Colbert did in 05 is one of the greatest performances in character. He did a character performance. What Seth Meyers did in 2011 was probably one of the greatest pure monologue type speeches. His just set up punch game was on fire. He was great. It's one of the best correspondence dinner speeches in terms of pure monologue setup punchline I've seen ever. He's like, don't try to copy what they're doing. You're a storyteller, so just tell a story. And I sort of really leaned into that. He's like, you do this. I, I, I've seen you do this, kid. You're, you're, you're good at it. You should just do what you're good at and build around your strengths. And that was just a big sort of it just shifted the way I think about a lot of things. Like if I try to iterate on what other people are doing or if I try to copy them, it's just going to come off as not me. And look, that that comparison is always going to be made. People are going to go like, oh, you're, you're doing like a comedy deep dive show. You're kind of like Oliver. People are going to make the comparisons. I can't reinvent the wheel in terms of the pure format itself, but I can make choices that feel bespoke to me. And that's what I'm trying to do as much as possible. I thought that, you know, in the first episode of the show, um, when you did a show about affirmative action, the affirmative action case at Harvard, where there's an argument that um, maybe um, they're discriminating against Asians, and you did it from your perspective um, as someone who's Indian, that was a ballsy fucking choice for beginning a show. Like, that's a, it's a narrow case. It's coming from a a specific perspective. I mean, I completely could have imagined there would be pressure to do something bigger, like, you know, Donald Trump is bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in theory, yeah. it's a bigger audience. But, you know, I feel like some doing something like that is really saying, like, this is the Hassan Minaj show. It's not a comedy show that, like, a like a topical comedy show that happens to be on Netflix. Yeah. And, like, was that a hard choice to make or did you always know you were going to make that choice? Yeah, I just, I just knew that it, there's plenty of places to go to get the news or to get, hey, here's a recap of what happened this week or this month or today. I just knew that 
you know, for the longest times, especially, you know, being at The Daily Show, you're the Pippin to their Jordan. You are you are a supporter of the greater vision of John or Trevor. You know, I had to ask myself, if you're given the runway room, what are you going to talk about? And, you know, I felt this way growing up in America. Like, I've always felt like an insider and an outsider at the same time. And I really wanted to look at topics where, hey, I have this feeling in me where I feel like I'm in the crosshairs of this thing. Affirmative action was one of those things in Saudi Arabia, and I wanted to open the show on that. In the Saudi Arabia episode we had been writing pre-Khashoggi, I just have always felt our relationship with Saudi Arabia is really complicated, and it's it's always been really weird for me to unbox, especially as an Indian-American Muslim. Like It's always been really crazy, and I wanted to pick topics like that to go, hey, this is how I feel about this topic. But it doesn't even have to be linked to my identity. It can be linked to my passion. Like we did this whole episode on Supreme, but that to me has been intrinsically tied into hype. Like why do I care about Jordans that no one else can have? You know, this idea, like what is the value of hype in and of itself? And why am I, why am I still a sucker to it? And that can be applied to Jordans or sneakers or Supreme. It doesn't matter. The scarcity principle idea and how it's, how I'm basically paying for self-esteem. Why? You know, that, that stuff is really interesting to me. So I wanted to just explore that and continue to explore that. I'm curious how you make sure if so much of the show is about storytelling and so much of it is about your, your own passions, like how you keep your own eyeline into that pure, right? Like how you keep absorbing enough information as you get busier and you have like more pressures on you and you're worried about ratings, like how you keep being able to take in enough and like see yourself clearly enough that you're able to keep coming up with those topics that don't get more banal. Because it seems to me that, you know, okay, you get two of those, seven of those, nine of those maybe. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in season, the middle of season two, you know, God willing, and yeah. you're 15 episodes in and like you've not been, you've not seen sunlight in a, you know, a year and a half. Yeah. yeah how yeah. do you, like, how do you keep a sense of like, what is you and what are all the pressures and the um, influences coming into you? Yeah. I mean, that is definitely one of those things where there's a balance, right? Like there are certain things where this immediately speaks to who I am, like in the core of who I am. And then there's other episodes where I have to elevate, you know, I, I naturally have to elevate my game and go, this may not directly affect me, but this irks me or it pushes me in some way. It ha the story has to speak to me in some way. There has to be something in it that makes me sort of walk into the office with a head full of steam. It has to. So that's been the big thing. And again, like it's why that barbershop aspect of collaboration is so big to me, keeping people around me where I'm kicking these things back and forth with them. And I'm sure you feel that way with when you work with your news team. Like to me, there's stuff where sometimes someone in our news team will bring something forward and go, you have to talk about this. And I'll be like, tell me what what irks you about this story? Why is the story important to you? And we will keep riffing and going back and forth until there's that aha moment where I go, okay, now you got me. That piece of information there makes me really passionate about that story. That's really interesting. That I totally hear. And it is a thing I miss the most, like being now across the country. Like I miss being around, you know, Sarah Cliff and Matt and, you know, like I have a lot of people in, in that room who – um, I'm very used to, to to doing that with. And I've also felt this like tension with it in recent years. It's part of why I'm, I'm interested in, in this line of questioning with you where at a certain point, and I think this had to do with being in management for for a long time, like I realized I had stopped being able to hear what I thought very clearly. 
like I was thinking in terms of how everybody else felt and thought. Oh, and like I like lost a bit of a sense of my own taste. And like part of going into a period where I've just like honestly gotten a little bit more quiet, um, you know, where I'm spending more time, you know, reading. It's like I feel like I'm trying to recharge my own sense of myself. Yeah. And like what am I actually interested in at this? But not not like what does Vox need me to be interested in because oh, I got very – yeah, yeah. And it's not the people in some ways like – I embodied myself very much in the institution uh-huh. and so began to kind of serve what I felt it needed for me, no longer like what, you know, just like what I would have been doing if I had been a, a solo writer. Yeah. And in some ways I'm trying to like, it, you know, it's like you're a, a bit of a tuning fork and mine got out of out of pitch or something and I'm trying to sort of get that clear again. And that's why I'm, I'm curious about people who, you know, for their role, like have to keep a very, very tight sense of what they think. In a space where, you know, there's just going to be more noise around for some time. You're doing more podcasts like this one. Like, you're out there, like, getting profiled. There's more feedback coming in. Yeah. Like, that That seems hard. Well, the one thing that's great is, you know, I've been doing comedy now for, you know, I, I still have a long way to go. But now it's been, what, I'm, I'm 33, so almost 15 years. So I know what works for me and what doesn't. Or at least I'm starting to get a really good understanding of, like, I can wear that shirt and I can't wear that one. This one suits me more i'll be like ah, i'm not really into that like I, I just kind of have have a pretty good intuition of that but the thing that i keep trying to do especially because you can get really deep into the comedy book report aspect of the show is i keep telling myself dude you gotta are you having fun like you gotta have fun you gotta do bits you have to have fun and there's stuff that we purposefully keep into the edit where sometimes i'll be in a joke or i'll be like reading to camera and then i'll go to camera four which is just like a side profile shot where i'm like interacting with the audience i have to have fun like and i want to inject that into the show as much as possible and the show can be the world of patriot act and the show can be so much more than just the deep dive like I did this thing where I, I just went shopping with Tan France from Queer Eye and it was really fun and we were talking about like life and identity and, and growing up and culture but we also like shopped for clothes for the show. That's also fun. It doesn't it, – it's, it's not particularly meaningful I guess. Like I don't have like a, a great take but it was just fun to do and like I've, I want to keep doing stuff like that. That's important to me. It just keeps you going. It makes it – it makes it fun. One of the other things I think is super interesting about the show is that it has this very distinct sense of visual design. Mm-hmm. And I actually met you through Joe Posner, who's our sort of amazing video lead and genius. And Joe's a genius. You guys were having. Yeah, Joe's he's a proper genius. Yeah. He's a proper genius. And you guys were having these really cool conversations about that. I'm curious, like, what that – what role that design aesthetic has played for you in, like, the conception show? How does it make the writing different? Like, what – what do you see it doing there? Is it just visuals to make the thing look cool or, or, or like what's the role it plays? So, I mean, this is going to get a little, I, you know, I might get in the weeds, but like, you know, one of the things that I've always felt is the way these shows are generally designed. I call them sort of late night variety shows, especially when they're desk driven. The host is at the desk and then they have what's called an OTS and over the shoulder. And it's that little square and they usually can Photoshop an image or show something. Your go-to move is you go to camera one, there's an over the shoulder square that usually shows like a Photoshop of like a, of a politician wearing a silly hat or a fake movie poster with a pun on it. You either have that move or you have a full screen clip. A, a VT sot, like a, a, a news clip. Those are your moves. And to me, so much of the conversation of what you're talking about when I'm talking about a story involves a larger tear out or, 
you know, in the case of the affirmative action headline piece, ProPublica did this killer piece on the Abigail Fisher story where it was talking about how Ed Bloom conveniently left out some details about who didn't and did get into the UT school system. That is like visual graphic. It's like a visual data visualization, which Vox does so well, right? That can't be confined in a very, very small over-the-shoulder shot. And one of the things that I, I, I really loved about visual storytelling is I just needed a bigger palette. So one of the things we explored in my Netflix special, Homecoming King, is I was surrounded by all these LED screens and I was able to show mood or exposition through the screens behind me. So I was playing maestro to all these things behind me, but it didn't take away from the story. And one of the things that I wanted to take from Homecoming King to Patriot Act was what if I expanded that palette? What if there was screens behind me, but they almost served as these chalkboards for information? And then there's also screens underneath me, which could then provide just really cool illustrative elements. Because I also think, look, like, you know, what we're doing, it is a visual medium. It should look visually cool and interesting. And I think visual beauty does matter. The jokes matter. The story matters. But things should be visually interesting um, because it's a visual medium. No one needs to see a fake city skyline behind me. I want to show – I want to have a, a, a relationship with the screens. And so that was something that I've, I've been really passionate about. What, what are the design influences you think about? Like when you, when you were thinking about how to build the show, like did you go out and look at anything? How did you get inspiration for that or are you always a visual thinker? I've always looked at things and I'll just take photographs of them on my iPhone and then I'll put together these inspo boards of like feelings, shapes, text, designs. And I remember seeing these redacted sort of documents of like government documents. And when I thought about the title Patriot Act, I saw all these like redacted CIA files and stuff like that. And then I thought about movement of lines and then those redacted lines, I thought of them whipping across screens and then bringing up information or zooming in on information. And I just sort of started building a world around that. And we have this killer graphics team. Michelle Higa Fox is our creative director, Yusuf Jorge, all these like really, really talented designers who came from commercial and came from these other worlds. They took these inspiration points of things that I really liked and they created this entire graphics Bible and visual language for the show. And I thought that was really awesome because Shows are usually one of two things. They're either all Bourdain, they're all in the field, or they're all at the desk. And I was like, what if I could play maestro to both of those things? What if I could play maestro to field pieces and then pop out of the field pieces and then interact with the field piece, then go back to the field piece, but then go back to a news tear out, but then show a, a large visual investigative report. But then I would just do a funny joke that involves me and a map. What if I could just do all of those things? And they were game for it. And, um, I just really like that. You know, some people feel like it's ADD, but to me, I just feel like that's the way I kind of look at the world. And I just want it to, to feel like, you know, I'm hosting the show and these screens are kind of like my Jarvis and I like, I interact with them. The, the other thing that I think is fascinating about doing shows on Netflix and, and, and we're doing one too, yeah. is if you're doing things that even can be topical, it's so different to create for a medium where it's creating a library yeah. not something that will be gone tomorrow. 
I actually really like that. Do you I do like too. that? Don't you like that though? Oh, I love that. Like that's the whole theory behind our, our show explained. You know, the like the whole theory is like how do we think about these topics that make the world more comprehensible to you, but they don't go bad in a week or a month. Like, you know, you want the show to be usable in two years, in five years. But it's a more different editorial process. Yeah. And it means you can't lean on things that are very normal to lean on. Yeah. Um, then I think people realize. And I think it's why a lot of stuff in this space has not worked on streaming. So I'm curious how you think about that in the, in your in your construction process. I, I totally think about it that way. Like it has to be deeper than did you see this gaffe from the senator? And then let's write four minutes of jokes about this gaffe. It's got to age, you know, like wine, not bread. And the the thing that I keep telling myself, and I don't, I don't know what like your guys's writing writing process is like, is something has to happen in the news that makes it feel timely, that then triggers us to talk about a timeless conversation, or something that's at least good for the next year or two. I really want you know when I think about affirmative action, that isn't. That actually is it to me isn't a headline on affirmative action. It's a affirm- it's a conversation on meritocracy. You know, like who gets what and why, and that's not going away. That conversation's existed for a long time. Yeah, I think about the news as a spotlight, right? Like the news yeah. is a spotlight, and yeah. like where it shines is where curiosity goes. Yeah, and like the question is like, can we make sure that spotlight is shining on something important? Can can we take people? Um, and, you know, a lot of our shows are really not on the news at all. But um, but can we take people from curiosity about something that they've heard about or are hearing about or experience in their lives yeah. and, like, get them to, like, be focusing on, on the big thing? So one of uh, our our Explained episodes that I'm the most proud of, and it's one that I worked on, to be fair, so maybe I'm just talking my own book. But we did this piece about the racial wealth gap. Uh-huh. And it's a exploration of something that I think you could watch it today or you could watch it in a year or you could watch it five years from now and it will make America make more sense to you. Yeah. And it's not on the news in any way, but it is like the news is on it is actually the way to put it. Yeah. And I feel that way about a lot of our best explainers, not just for Netflix, but but for anywhere that like we think about things being on the news, a topic being on the news, but actually the news is on the world. Mm. And like the stories we pay attention to reflect things going on in the world. We have an episode on DNA editing and like how that's changing CRISPR. You know, or we have this great – we have this episode I just love on cannabis and the way that the plant has actually changed over the past 30 or 40 years because of how intensively we've been growing it and modifying it. And so now like pot is just – unimaginably stronger than it was in the 70s when a lot of these studies were done. And we really don't know what it does to people, like not in the way we think we do. And so like finding the things the news is on or that our lives are on, um, like we had the show about monogamy and like kind of what it is. And, like, yeah, I loved, I, I loved the monogamy episode and the K-pop episode. I loved both of yeah, them. Yeah, like those are just in the world. Anyway, so like that to me is what's really exciting about the, the editorial process. Instead of thinking about – it gives you this amazing ability. To, instead of being like, what is on the news today? Like what is the news on today? Or like what is my life on today? Because we don't actually have that many prompts, certainly in journalism, to focus on those issues. But they're the ones that really matter. That's awesome. But I assume that's sort of the way you guys are doing it too. Like when I look at it, it seems to me that you're picking topics that you know, if I had to judge – they were going to be here, you know, in a couple of years. Like your Amazon show, for instance, it was about like a way we live and shop now. It wasn't really about like what is happening with Amazon at this moment. And you could imagine it being the kind of thing that if something, you know, three or four years from now, if there's an antitrust case, people are like, oh, you know, you should watch that Patriot Act on this. Like this will help you 
that'll help you see it. And I'm curious how you build that discipline to just not be, to not go for kind of the easier and like shorter shelf life things, pretty given that you need visuals and like a lot of things that are offer you like a bit of visual news by nature are like the news. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be a hundred percent honest, this, this happened to me just naturally at the show, at the daily show. I got exhausted following Trump, man. And it just was one of those things where the news exhausted me. It exhausted me as like a person, as a comedian, as a husband. I just felt like everything I was watching, whether it was the Mueller investigation, whether it was Comey, and just anything I was following, it felt like the story was never done. Something would happen. There would be great tape. There would be some footage. So, you know, some politician would say something funny and we would as quickly as possible try to cover it and make sense of it that day and, and give people some respite through jokes. But for me as a storyteller, I'm, at the same time, I'm spending all this time down at Ch- the Cherry Lane Theater working on a one-man show, like crafting these larger narratives. I just felt like I'm better at that, you know, and I think about the world that way, you know, like – when I'm raised with something like Amazon where I'm like, dude, you know all these horrible things about Amazon, but you use Prime now because it's crazy. It's great. And then, you know, I'm like, I'm lazier than I am woke, but I still have to reckon with this thing. All right. And then you just keep sort of like digging deeper and deeper on those things. And then the most interesting thing that I thought about was the, you know, the antitrust laws and how they were, they're not designed you know, around this behemoth now that is Amazon, that it's it makes Standard Oil and 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 Microsoft look like laughable, you know. And so, those are the things that I find to be more interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Your point about Trump, I think, is really true. We have, I mean, like it is our job. Like we do a lot of covering him, but I do think a lot about part of what he is trying to do. Like literally, what he is trying to do is never let you pay attention to anything aside from the things he wants you focusing on, aside yeah. from the fights he wants us to be having. I mean, he's very calculated in the way he turns our attention to certain things. And like neglecting, I think there can be this feeling that it is our responsibility to pay attention to every crazy thing he says. Yeah. But neglecting important things in the world so he can dominate our attention ceaselessly is I think a way of letting him win that is bad. Yeah. Um, like I, I, I think there's become like a kind of toxic narrative around this that you have to be paying attention to everything he does when in fact like that is what he wants. Like he wants everybody paying attention to everything he does. So it's like you can't get any context and you're just in this kind of like, you know, us v them narrative that he thinks kind of he'll win because like maybe he'll, his side will be a little bit bigger if he can like control which issues the, the us v them break down on. And so I do think there's something profound and important, you know, obviously for shows, you know, that, that are non, that are, that are not news oriented, but even for the news about just like maintaining some perspective yeah. on him and just like not letting him control everything. Yeah. And I understand, I, you know, I'm sure you are sensitive to, you know, coming from the post and all that stuff, you understand it's like he is the president of the United States, so you have to cover what the president is doing. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you deal with this. Like, I really think about, I think about people's lives and the things that I'm trying to create for the world. Like, do you ever think about like uh, the value that you know you're providing people on these shows through through your show? Because I think I, I sometimes I'll just ask people what they watch, and a lot of times what they watch when they want to go home, they just don't want to watch or read the news. They're just like, I just want to feel better, man. 
like put on Great British Bake Off. And sometimes I honestly have these moments where I'm like, man, I should just host a cooking show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like today I'm going to make my mom's halva. You guys like halva, right? It's like rice pudding, but better, you know, and just like start making that, you know, and people would be like, wow, this is really calming. I think about this all the time, honestly. And I think it's the thing that of everything created the most crisis of, you know, what am I doing? What are we doing in the past couple of years? Yeah. Like that feeling that I had, that I knew everybody around me had, that they couldn't stop paying attention, but they also like, couldn't bring down their level of emotional alarm. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I think that part of the project there is to have a sense of things that are important in the world that, that people should know about, but then be able to connect that to a way of like, like being, being empathic enough to the audience. And this might go to the way you do your work. And I think it's to some degree the way I do increasingly more of mine of like looking inside yourself and being like, how am I actually reacting to this? What is this actually doing to me? What am I really feeling here? Not like what I think I should be feeling, but what am I feeling? And trying to create things that can operate in that space between like what is actually important and what the audience actually needs. And I think so often in journalism, I don't know if this is true, but I, I could imagine it is in comedy, we're writing for each other. Mm -hmm. um, we get into these industry incentives and we lose sight of the audience itself. Totally. And so like we are, you know, a lot of like the basic idea of explanatory journalism is recognizing that people are smart, but they don't have the context for everything. Yeah. So if you can do more work to give them the context then they can follow more stories more effectively. And so like, why don't we create an organization that is about context or, you know, like explain feels that way. And, you know, even this podcast, right? This podcast feels to me like a place where I can have discussions about things that matter, that feel more human um, and are calmer at a time when things feel very inhuman because everything is so packaged for social media and everything else right. and everything is so alarmed. Yeah. Um, and it isn't to say that one shouldn't be alarmed. It is simply to say that like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And like things have to operate at a level where like people can keep going with it. And so I don't know, like I think about that a lot. Like I'm really, really, really concerned, you know, two days out of five <laughs> that journalism broadly is um, making things better as often as it's making them worse. And that it's doing that not because we're doing a bad job, but because cumulatively like we're just kind of getting led around by bad people who are setting the agenda. And I don't know, I've been, it's a separate sort of thread of conversations I've been having in interviews here, but like how to be a little bit more self-directed and how to like think through where the audience is more is I think really important. And it's one reason, that, you know, I'll just say for, for my Netflix experience, one, one reason I've loved doing explained so much of like, I watch that show. I'm like, yeah, like this makes things better. Like, this show feels to me like it's on the right side. And, you know, like, it's one reason I want to interview. Like, I watch Patriot. I'm like, this is good. Like, this is good work. And there's something about getting a little bit more distance at a time when I think the technological mediums have, like, collapsed distance. And something about getting a little bit more slowness at a time when everything has gotten faster. It's like yeah. it creates space where judgment can operate. And that's been really valuable to me. That's awesome. I agree with that. And you're not trying to just, like, win, win the day with, the most retweets, which is just like, yeah, I just can't operate in that space. I assume you have a more profound sense of this than I do, but it seemed to me that when John Oliver, you know, went out and said like, oh, my big innovation on this is I'm going to do it weekly and slow it yeah. down and like mm -hmm. widen the aperture of what I'm talking about. And like people loved that. That felt to me like a really profound lesson for us all. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, there, there, it was the era where they were like, nothing on YouTube can be longer than four minutes. 
And he was like, I'm going to do 28 minutes on retirement homes. And people are like, sign me up. Like, you know what I mean? Or whatever it was. But like that to me, it was liberating. It yeah. was liberating to see that. And that that's really that's really cool. The person who I don't think gets credit for this who should actually is Rachel Maddow too. Yeah, interesting. Before her and Cable, you did not have long reads. Like Cable was like fast. You move from person to person. Like, you know, the, you came back from personal. It's like, all right. President did something. We have two people here to yell about it. Uh-huh. And like she begins doing these 12 minute reads, these like long stories. Uh-huh. And I think she proved to a lot of people in a different way. It's like the audience has an attention span that we are not giving them credit for. Like the fact that we're not doing a good job using it does not mean they don't have it. Oh, interesting. Wow. That's actually really fast. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of the work that she was doing in that, in that regard that she was like, I, I want to push the boundaries of this on, on cable news. I mean, before her, nobody did anything like that. Cable news was so fast. And now a lot of people try, a lot of people do it. Obviously, she, I think, is a particular master of that form. But Uh I don't know, like, we were talking earlier about one of the reactions to this era might be that people have to get a little bit more generous in how they read. But I think people are beginning to move towards things that slow it down a little bit. Huh. I think so. I think so. I mean, like, the popularity of podcasting and stuff, that's, that's, that's great. I just... I think people are allocating that time to like, yeah, like on my commute, I will listen to an hour-long podcast of a, of, of a conversation. The thing that I think when I hear the word slowing down is like, do you need to have white headphones in all the time? <laughs> you, know, you know, like do we constantly have to live with the stream of information coming at us all the time? And that that to me I think is like – Something I'm thinking about, like myself, you know. Have you changed any of your habits around that? Yeah, I don't have social media on my phone. I just like I just can't do it. I don't do that. You know, when I'm in a specific zone, you know, I think of it like almost like recording a song. I'm working on this episode for our next cycle at the top of the year, and right now, you know, sometimes people see me in the street and they're like, "Hey, did you hear about this thing that's happening in the news?" And it's like, "No, actually, I'm I'm really like I'm really focused on this one thing, and I I just want to live in that space and." And watch stuff or in that sort of zone because I just can't take all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a guy I've had on the show um, and his argument on this has really influenced me. His name is Cal Newport and he wrote this book called Deep Work and he's got a really cool book coming out soon called Digital Minimalism. Yeah. But his basic idea is that in this era when we are like our brains are literally being changed to expect more distraction, to like need things to be quicker, to like tolerate boredom and like long periods of focus worse, yeah. that there are going to be these really outsized returns um, both personally and professionally to people who are kind of able to cultivate those longer attention spans. You want to be able to do the things that other people can't do. Uh-huh. And I think he's right. Like I think there's going to be – there's this interesting um, New York Times piece recently about like the digital divide we didn't expect, which is like you go back 15 years and it's like people are worried about a digital divide and like what they're worried about is that like richer kids are going to have like iPods and stuff and like poor kids won't. And the thing that's beginning to emerge is like everybody's got screens and richer kids whose like parents have like more time or can hire more help or whatever, they're keeping them off the screens more oh, where kids from lower income families are like like the like there's nobody home, you know, like the parents are working two jobs. And so yeah. like they're on these screens all the time. Yeah. And so, you know, you could imagine like one of the things that happens here, which I think is like a pretty scary dystopic vision of the world is like you get, you know, one of the things that separates um, 
you know, more privileged kids from less is that they've like been had more help, like building these kinds of like less distracted, more focused approaches to things. Oh, that's really so I don't know. Like, I think there's something like really, I think there's something really there. I'm like very charged up about those topics. Can I ask you this? Yeah. I've really wanted to ask you this, especially as, as a journalist, right? So people come up to me all the time and they've asked me this and they, I get asked this all the time where they go, hey man, what's the power of political satire and why doesn't it, you know, you guys speak truth to power, but does it really have value? I mean, aren't you just speaking to an echo chamber? And oftentimes I've just sort of, I've gotten to this like really frustrating like spot where I'm like, dude, why am I the voice of the revolution? When were comedians the voice? Did the revolution ever start with a 10 minute late night set? Like when did that ever happen? Going back to like Rosa Parks or, you know, like even like the foundation of America. Like why do we have to carry this massive burden of, you know, if John Stewart was on TV, Donald Trump wouldn't be president. Is that true? You really believe that? Like that's really messed with my mind where I'm like, why do we have this responsibility? Why do, why do we have to bear this burden? That's funny. Somebody literally argued to me two days ago that if John Stewart on TV, Donald Trump would be president. I was super surprised to hear the argument. <laughs> Dude, Bush won twice and Stewart was in full form. I know. Like, what are you talking about? I, I don't know. Um, I will say this. I find it frustrating as a consumer of a lot of this stuff when the topical comedians, and I, I, I would put you in this category, sort of decry responsibility. Like John Stewart's thing that I follow puppets making crank phone calls, I always thought was a little bit um, BSy. Sure. Like he was a really important political voice. Like he had senators and presidents and like, you know, I mean, it was an important 100%, show. Was, 100%. You know, so yeah. I never liked that. But I do think that, you know, if we've learned anything, like the media is powerful, but it's not that powerful. Like politicians are better. Like people are... You know, in the same ways that people are pretty made up in their minds, like they're not like that, that reduces our power. And I think that might be in some ways a good thing. Um, I'm not sure how powerful we all should be. You know, we're all kind of unelected um, in some ways, like entertainers or, you know, inform information peddlers or whatever it might be. So I don't know, like, I don't think it drives everything, but I do get the view that it should matter. I think people are off with the degree to which we're powerful. Yeah. That's the thing. The size of the Superman cape you are giving your favorite celebrity. It's like, hey man, like Kendrick Lamar's album is great. Why hasn't he solved police brutality? It's like, <laughs> are, are you crazy? But it's sold so many records. It has so many streams on Spotify. Why hasn't it changed the world? And I think there's this weird like responsibility people put around a cult of personality where they're like, well, this person, they have so many followers on Instagram or Twitter. They should be able to, they should be able to solve Rohingya. And it's like, I don't get it. And there's whole articles. Like, as that's what I don't understand. Like, you maybe you understand that side of news so much. Why are there these huge think pieces on the power of or the powerlessness of? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know why. I, I, I take your point on that. Like, why, why are there, like, why is there some of this commentary? I think two things. One is that I think people are very hungry for there to be some institution that can solve this. I think part of what you're getting there is a feeling that shouldn't someone be in charge? Like, shouldn't someone, right? Like, if it's not going to be the president, like the media, like the comedians, like, shouldn't someone be able to take a situation? I love John Mulaney's thing that it's like a horse loose in a hospital. Like, that's yeah. the political situation. Like, yeah. shouldn't someone be able to get the horse out of the hospital? Uh -huh. And so 
I'm not sure if they – I think that that is like the psychological context in which this stuff is being written. Yeah. That there's this constant feeling of like somebody should be – you know, there should be some adult we can call. And it's not any one comedian. But then the other thing I would say is that I think we are powerful, but we're powerful in strange ways, right? I think that this world of comedy and in a separate way media – I think it is very powerful in constructing culture among the people it does affect. Uh, so, you know, I don't think that The Daily Show uh, was like huge among the, you know, what ended up being Trump's base. But I think that Stewart's kind of ironic, satiric, you know, that kind of the rallies that were basically like for sanity. I think that they had something to do with Obama. You know, like I think that kind of like the the Democratic Party went towards like a cool, very yeah. smart, very intellectual. It's not all the reason, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think too often what people want from the media or what people want from comedians or entertainers or anybody with a following is to affect the people they that don't follow them, which doesn't work. But I think that they do have a lot of um, responsibility for how they inform or affect or speak with the people who do follow them. And so like – and that is a kind of power. I like that take. It's power in strange or ancillary ways you may or may not see. That's cool. That works for me. But I think there's a lot of like someone is looking for a parent here to just tell yeah. them everything will be okay or to be like, I solved it. You know? And I'm like, I, I just I just can't believe that like there are entire think pieces devoted to this in huge reputable news outlets being like, why isn't this working? And that makes me really befuddled. And I think that also really, 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 really messes with the way, again, to go back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, like the way comedians are being criticized. It's like, can the level of critique match the level of power someone has here? Yeah. And I take, I, I, it, tell me if I'm wrong. Something you're, I think, getting at here is like there seems to be an outsized focus on comedians right now in the culture that something is being asked of comedians and something is being read into comedy that I don't yeah. feel like was true in like, quote unquote, the conversation 10 or 20 years ago. Totally. And I think there's this acceptance, like, you know, I've always seen a close kinship with musicians. And I think musicians have always liked comedy, right? There's, there, there is a musicality to it. And I really do feel that way in storytelling, intonation, act outs, tone. Like you can make a joke work by the way you raise your eyebrow. It's, there's just, there's jazz like intangible element to it that can make stuff work beyond the page, right? And that's also in music. But what I've loved about music is a musician can put out an album where there's, there's a track that is righteous and then there's a track that is like super ratchet and both of those dichotomies exist on an album and people accept the musician and they accept those sides of them. But comedians aren't given that. Like now the things we put out are seen as the Old Testament. It's seen as scripture and I, I don't know. I'm I, I'm like a big advocate of like, hey, can you also calculate in intention like, can you also calculate in where they're coming from at that moment in their life that maybe got them to say that joke? You know, like, I, I wish that got more injected into the dialogue. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, well, here, let me give you an opportunity to shape my audience and, and give them more sense of your intention and how you got to this point. I always end the show asking for three books the guest has read that they'd recommend. But I'd ask you for that or, you know, given your knowledge of the history of this stuff, what are three stand-up comedy sets that people should watch? 
Oh, that's a great question. I love that. Okay. Do that one. Um, three all time. Okay, this is a deep cut, but I actually think everybody loves Chris Rock's Bring the Pain, which is a great special. But I actually really like his 1994 special. It's a half hour special called Big Ass Jokes. It's really, really funny. I really, really like it. That's one. Chelsea Peretti has one called One of the Greats. It's on Netflix. It's really, really funny. Like she makes me laugh really hard. It's kind of like out there and just crazy and, and weird in the best ways. And she's really funny. And then one of my favorite storytellers is Mike Birbiglia. I just love Birbiglia like in terms of his ability to, to craft story but then also lace his sets with really, really dense jokes. There is not a sentence that he leaves to spare without a joke or a storytelling device that moves the story forward or moves you as an audience member. Um, I would say if you guys are in New York City, go see his new show called The New One, or you can go see one of my favorite specials is Sleepwalk With Me, which is one of my favorite shows ever. Those are my three comedy specials I think you should watch. And your show is Patriot Act. People should watch that too. Hassan Minaj, thank you very much. Thanks, Ezra. Thank you to Sam Minaj for being here. Thank you, of course, to my producer, Julian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner, to Topher Roof and UC Berkeley for giving me a place to record these podcasts. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days. 